Andrea Penrose is a USA Today best-selling author of Regency-era historical fiction, including the acclaimed Rexford and Sloan mystery series. She's published internationally in 10 languages, is a three-time Rita Award finalist, and is the recipient of numerous writing awards, including two Daphne du Maurier Awards for Historical Mystery. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next installment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today on Binge Reading, Andrea is talking about Murder at the Merton Library, book seven in her best-selling Rexford and Sloan series. Responding to an urgent plea from a troubled family friend, the Earl of Rexford journeys to Oxford only to find the reclusive university librarian has been murdered and a rare manuscript has gone missing. The words of one reviewer, it's another of Andrea's well-thought-out mysteries with early forensic science, great details of the era and a slow-burning attraction that creates a compulsive read. For our usual weekly giveaway, check the show notes for this episode on the website thejoysofbingereading.com and remember if you enjoy the show leave us a review so others will find us too. Word of mouth is still the best way for people to discover the show and great books they will love to read. But now here's Andrea. Hello there Andrea and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me here Jenny. I'm really excited to uh, chat with you. You're a best-selling author of the Rexford and Sloan Regency Mystery Series. And the next one, number seven, I think is due to be published next week, isn't it? It, it actually, in the U.S., came out last week. Oh, uh, great. Murder in the Merton Library, as it's called. For those who may not quite remember, the Merton Library is one of the most ancient and revered libraries in Britain at Oxford University. So you've got a great location to start. But you did start out writing romance, didn't you? How did you get called into doing the mysteries? I really liked writing romance, but a story really is about a, the relationship, how the two people fall in love. And I found myself more and more interested in developing a, a greater psychological depth with characters and the idea that a mystery usually will have is a series and will have the protagonist, the same protagonist in each book. So you have a chance to develop the characters and plunge into the depths of friendship and vulnerabilities and, and how they tie in with their friends. A mystery tests you. It tests your sense of trust of who you're working with, who you can believe. So you question yourself about a lot of things. And I felt it gives me a bigger range to develop the characters and really have a little more complexity in the depth. The story doesn't just revolve around a love story, even though there can be parts of that. There are definite emotions that develop in my mysteries, but I just feel it gives me a broader canvas on which to paint a story. 
Yes, some of your reviewers have used that phrase, slow burning romance, that you have several couples there who are taking quite a long time to get to the critical point where they might legitimize their relationship. But tell me, some people, some authors complain that once they have legitimized the relationship, it's then quite hard to maintain the momentum because the romance reader side of it understand, okay, they've had their happy ever after. What is there left to, to be excited about? How do you handle that part of it? I, that is a real challenge, I think. I try and think about, okay, now, you're, now you have a family. You have responsibilities that you didn't have when you were basically independent and alone. And I think most of us understand that. We know there are transitions like that. So I think readers can maybe appreciate that the slow burn can still be there. Relationships deepen and they go through bumps in the road, which I'll try and have. But I also think just developing that sense of how do you adjust to now suddenly you put yourself in danger and there are a lot of people who are depending on you and you have to figure out the consequences of that. And I think we all relate to that as family, as you develop, broaden a family, you have children become involved. And I do have two urchins who are basically have become wards of the Earl and Charlotte. And so I'm trying to develop some of the complexity of those issues too. Yeah, that I love Hawk and Raven. They're, they're a great <laughs> addition to the series. Um, and Sloan, they're both extremely individualistic, passionate, and strong characters. Give us a feeling of how they met and tell us a bit about them. They really didn't like each other when they first met. Charlotte is a satirical cartoonist, which in Regency times was really like the late night social commentators we have in this country. It'd be Jimmy Kimmel and Trevor Noah and people like that. But they really told the public what was really going on. They would reveal the scandals in the government or what the rich and famous were misbehaving or the banks would have financial difficulties. So they were really the people who kept society honest. And Charlotte is doing a satirical cartoon on Rexford because he's having a feud with a very pious cleric. And when the cleric is found murdered, he is obviously the prime suspect. Charlotte has seen the murder scene before any of the authorities got there. And she has a feeling he's not guilty. She's seen a few things. And he somehow, even though she's very private, she works under a pen name because a woman could never criticize the government. And he manages, though, he's very clever. He manages to track her down and gives her an ultimatum. She was going to help prove him innocent or he's going to unmask her. She really feels she has no choice, but she hates him first. But they come to respect each other because she's an artist, he's a scientist. They both see things, they observe things very carefully, but they see things in very different ways. He's all logic. She sees, uh, she uses her intuition a lot of time. And they come to have a grudging friendship because they really admire each other's passion for justice and admire how they unravel a mystery because it's very different than how they would do it themselves, but they see that their skills complement each other. 
Now, for those people who might like to start at the beginning of the series, that first book is called Murder on Black Swan Lane, isn't it? So just if people are looking for it, that's what they need to look for. Now, each yeah. book is keyed around some of the both social and scientific developments that are going on around them at the time. And as you've mentioned, Rexford's got this brilliant scientific mind. You go into some of that stuff in a great deal of detail. It is fascinating. <laughs> but for yeah, somebody well, who isn't a scientist, you think, oh, wow, I'm learning a lot here. <laughs> it is ironic because the last formal science class I took was like ninth grade biology. But I actually really have become fascinated by science because in doing a lot of reading around, about the Regency, the scientists and the artists at the time, the poets, the painters, they felt they were kindred souls because they saw each other as creative, trying to understand the mysteries of the world. They saw beauty. The poets would see beauty in the stars, and so did the people studying the heavens to see how the stars work. It's really fascinating. But the other thing I love about it is that it I find such a parallel to our modern times. The Regency really is considered the birth of the modern world and the Industrial Revolution. Suddenly, steam engines, electricity, they're beginning to understand these phenomena and it's changing everyday life, disrupting it. And people are frightened. They're losing their jobs, the mill workers, and technology is disrupting their society and it's putting pressure on that. And I'm thinking... Things don't change. Here we are and feeling much of the same angst with this world that seems to be changing every day. And while I love Jane Austen in the quiet country house parties, the Regency really has a lot of that tension and excitement. Things are really changing in all aspects of society. And that really interested me to try and work into my stories because I think readers, they're escaping to a wonderful time in the past, but they're also, I'm showing, they're, they were dealing with many of the same fears and anxieties that we are. Yes, it's just terrific. In this book, the Merton Library book, you do draw in the international race to get ocean-going steamships, which I never really thought about before. And in earlier books, you did one about medical discoveries and, and what they were getting out of plants. And you also did one about fraudulent trading bonds, both of which have terrific parallels with our own time. The first one, just so I can mention it, is murder at the Botanic Gardens. That's the one with the medical discovery. And then there's the trading bonds one is murder on Queen's Landing. You do give a very good picture of what Regency England was like. And I did wonder, you say at the beginning that you got drawn into the Regency period because of your love of Jane Austen. What, yeah. as you've gone along, have you, do you find you love about it most? I just find it incredibly exciting in so many ways. You had music, art, politics, so much of the world. They were beginning to see things in very different ways. Romanticism was developing very much. You had Beethoven writing these incredibly emotional and personal symphonies. Poetry was becoming more personal. The individual was coming to the fore and feeling, I can really express myself. I'm not just, not just a part of society is very regimented. People were beginning to press the rules. You had 
Mary Wollstonecraft writing the first feminist manifestos, really. And so people were finding a voice and saying, hey, I have an opinion about this, and I think we need to change a lot of things in, in the world. And so I just find that a really exciting to have gone beyond just the balls and the tea parties, which were very much a part of the Regency, but there's so much more there too, and both darker, dark side and light side too. Dog. Now, introducing Raven and Hawk gave you the opportunity to also delve into the semier side of London in a way that some of the other Regency books don't get into. There's a lot of scenes around the docks, and you have a very strong sense of location. You go into detail about where the warehouse on this particular dock is located. So you feel as if you've walked those streets. And I just wondered, if you could live in Regency London, you'd find your way around it pretty successfully, it seems to me. I really do love going. London is so wonderful to me, too. There's so many small esoteric museums. There's actually a museum of the Dockland. And to go there, and they've replicated an alleyway and the shops that would be in it. And so you can learn so much. The Museum of London has Vauxhall Garden, little scenes set up. So you really can get a sense, a wonderful, I, when I go over there, I just walk all through the neighborhoods and I, I do research trying to find what are some of the small museums that maybe one doesn't tend to hear about. There's a wonderful science museum. There, there's a, Sir John Soane's house where you can actually go in and get a sense of what a Regency townhouse was like. So I really do try and see as much as I can about what I want to write about. Actually, it sounds to me like you'd be well set up to do one of those books that are the guide to Wrexham and Sloan and go into all the different... (laughs) (laughs) Probably turn into a very popular tourist guide. (laughs) That would be fun. I love research. I love even going online and looking at manuscripts. And that. I, when you say I, I'm very specific, I have a wonderful old map that I've bookmarked at, at, in, at Harvard's, one of our universities here in the, their library. And it is this wonderful detail. You can zoom in and literally see alley, the little branches of the alleyways off street. So when I decide that Raven and Hawk are going to make a journey to go X, I literally pull up the map and I go, oh, that's fun. I'll have them go through Covent Garden and down through Whitehall. And so I have fun doing that. And that tactile quality does come across. Charlotte has had a rather unconventional backstory that you've fed in as we go along. Now, we won't spoil anything too much, but She's socially, at the beginning, socially unacceptable. She's on the very fringes of respectability. And yes, I think it's fun. I've unpacked a lot of Charlotte in in this latest book, Murder at Merton Library. I'm beginning to reveal some of Rexford's background, and that's actually going to continue. I have just turned in book eight. But no, I'm not going to give any hints, but there are... I find it fun to slowly reveal a little more of their complexities and their depths and what some of their vulnerabilities are. And do we have a title for that next book yet? 
We do. It is called Murder at King's Crossing. Oh, great. And that'll be out probably about a year from now, will it? It'll be out in September of 24. Yes. Yeah, that's great. You also have another Regency series, the Lady Ariana series. Tell us a little bit about that series. That tends to be a little more action political oriented. They do a lot of traveling to solve. You'll see them at Waterloo and on Elba before Waterloo. The first book, there's a very adversarial relationship with the Minister of State Security, in other words, the spymaster of Britain, who thinks Ariana has come to Britain for nefarious reasons. And she encounters the Earl of Saybrook in the course of seeking revenge for her father's murder, who was a disgraced aristocrat, fled to the West Indies, and she and he were exiles, basically. She grew up in the West Indies. Her father is murdered. She's 14 or 15 and has to fend for herself. So she's had a very rough and tumble growing up. Her backstory is a little rough. And she comes back to Britain because she thinks she knows who framed her father and murdered him. So in the course of unraveling that, she meets the Earl of Saybrook and they solve the the murder. She was right in who she guessed and that solves. But they have a run-in with the spymaster of Britain who then manipulates them into doing a few other things. It's fun because I get to take them to some um, foreign, they go to the Congress of Vienna, which was the big peace conference after uh, Napoleon is first deposed. And then they end up on Elba, Waterloo, and the last book, they've gone to Russia to deal with a problem with the Tsar of Russia. And so it's fun to be able to research and do something a little different in that they're they're always solving the political problem for Britain. Fantastic. How do you face up to the very favorite question for a historical fiction author, and that is balancing fact and fiction? I try and really stay very close to facts, what has happened, and I try and make sure that I don't take liberties with the Battle of Waterloo, the ball, the Duchess of Richmond's ball. I really researched all those things. And when I put my fictional characters in there, I usually will have some cameos. I'll have Wellington be it at the ball and some of the other generals who actually were there. So I try and mix that. And then in an author's note, I try and say the mystery they were solving is fictional. They're after a document or something that that is purely fiction, but gives them a reason to be in certain places and solve a a mystery for the government. But I, I actually do try and put an author's note and let a reader know what is fact and fiction, because I like to know that when I'm reading the book. Yes, it is fascinating. It's particularly relevant now, though, because you have also got another new book coming out, and it's your first move into fictionalized biography. Yeah, yeah, but still in Regency times. My publisher had asked me if I'd be interested in doing one, and, and at first I was really, I wasn't sure. I thought fictional biography, it seems like such a contradiction in terms, 
And then I read a few and I understood. I wrote about Lady Hester Stanhope, who was from a very prominent, incredible family, actually. Her uncle and her grandfather were prime minister, very famous prime ministers of, of Britain. There are two other prime ministers. There's a foreign secretary. There war heroes. The intertwine, the Stanhopes, the Grenvilles, and the Pitts are just an amazing story. And she just wanted to be at the table with the men. And she was smart enough and clever enough, but obviously she was swimming against the tide. She has some very interesting triumphs, but terrible disasters simply because she was striving to be someone that society wouldn't allow. And I found her fascinating. I didn't think I was going to like her. She's very sharp and acerbic and sometimes makes decisions that you think are a little impetuous. But she also, her courage and her grit and her resilience, especially her ability to suffer tragedy and yet pick herself up and still have a belief in her dream, I, I found that really pretty amazing. And so I decided to take on the project. And it was fascinating. She had three tumultuous love affairs with very famous men. That was interesting because reading about them as well as her, it's lucky in that she's from such a prominent family. A lot of letters, her letters exist. So I could read them and get a feel I got a real sense of her and her sense of humor, her sharp tongue. She could be very sarcastic. And so that gave me a feel because I wrote it in first person. I felt it really called for that. And trying to figure out how she would be relating to some of these things that happened to her was interesting. I hope I have done her justice. But it was a story that was better than any novelist could make up, really, her real life story. I found a wonderful scholarly biography on her. So I tried to stay absolutely as close to her real life as I could in terms of dates and in terms of who she was with. It, it was very easy to know where she was and who she was interacting with in real life. So that gave a framework. And then I just tried emotionally to, to capture what I would, what I thought she would be feeling at these times. Yes. So that one's called The Diamond of London. And when is that actually going to be published? That will come out. It's a February book. It comes out at the end of January. It releases in this country. It's a pre-order and on most every major site. She ended up actually man managing to engineer quite an amazing role for herself as the hostess for an unmarried uncle who was one of these prime ministers of Britain, William Pitt the Younger, that you've mentioned. And so she, for a little brief period, she was one of the most important women in London, wasn't she? She absolutely was the, probably the most powerful woman in London. The diplomats and all of the politicians knew they had to come through her to have any chance of talking with her uncle really respected her opinions on things. The male politicians did come to respect her, but of course, when her uncle died and then she had no official position anymore, it was amazing how fast they were no longer her friends. She couldn't give them anything. And yeah. 
that was a sad, true story. I guess that's the way politics works through the ages. It does indeed, doesn't it? And that she wasn't crushed by that sort of stuff. She was an incredibly strong woman. And then her whole life is just quite amazing. I only took the early part, her part in, in Britain, growing up in Britain, because her last love was a, a British general. And when he died in battle, a hero, she felt she had to leave the memories in England. Her younger brother was badly wounded and was really PTS when he got back from the war. And she took him to Greece, said, we just let's explore the Greece and Constantinople and the in Palestine. And she never came back to England. She became the queen of the desert. She had her own army. She finally had of all ironies in the Arabic world, she found they didn't know what to make of her. So they decided she couldn't really just be a normal woman. They looked at her as something unique. And she actually brokered deals between the warlords, was respected by them. It, it's really quite, quite an amazing life. Yeah, it sounds like it would actually be great to do a sequel. I know. She became pretty bizarre in her later life. So I like the part I chose because I think you saw her character really develop and you understood the challenges and the, the disappointments. It was a, an incredibly rich and full life, just that segment of her life. Talking now about your wider career and particularly your tastes as a reader, we always like to ask our authors, about their reading habits, because we like to get some recommendations for people about what they might like to read. So it is more your personal leisure reading and what people might like to read for pleasure. Have you got any recommendations? I am an avid reader. I Boy, where do I even start? <laughs> oh, I read a lot of nonfiction that I find fascinating, something like the Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson on Churchill, British history. On, but, uh, you know, for in terms of mystery, I love Alison Montclair, who does the Bainbridge Sparks series, which is set just after World War II in London. The two characters, Sparks and Bainbridge, are just wonderful. One is an aristocratic woman who's had a nervous breakdown because of her, her beloved husband was killed in the war. And the other is a gritty MI6 spy. And they're totally different. One is a bit naive about the real world, and the other is this gritty. And it's marvelous. I, I think it's just a fabulous series. And I'm a big fan of the Sebastian St. Serre Regency mystery. Um, oh, yes, I, yeah. I think she just, he's just a marvelous character and she does really interesting themes it gets into the grittier side of the regency as well it's just it's so hard to name everything i enjoy reading yeah but those are a couple of great ones i hadn't heard of Alison montclair oh, i must Mont say but well, you definitely it's no secret to reveal that Alison montclair is actually a man and which oh. i found absolutely fascinating too and I have met him at a few conferences. He's absolutely delightful. But I love that he writes to women incredibly well. 
I, I highly recommend it. I think he started as a playwright too. He's he's a fascinating guy. But so anyone who hasn't, I highly recommend trying that series. Great. Look, you're published internationally in ten languages. You're a three-time Reader Award finalist, and you've received many awards, including two Daphne du Maurier Awards for Historical Mystery. What would you consider to be the quotes secret of your success as a writer? If we had any secrets for success, <laughs> we would bottle them. <laughs> I think I've just persevered. Trust me, this business, you have your ups and downs. You really have to never take success. Oh, this is easy. I mean, you know. This is always going to be this way. We've all had ups and downs. And I think the key, I don't know, for me is I just, I love writing and I know what stories are in my head and I have fun writing them. And I'm thrilled when readers seem to enjoy them too. Yeah, that's great. I think you have to just trust yourself and write what you love to write. Yeah. Looking back down the tunnel of time of your creative career, if there was one thing you could change, what would it be? I think I might have moved into mystery a little earlier. I think there was a time where everyone said, oh, no, you just have to be writing. Romance is the hot thing. And it's true. Things go in cycles. But I think I always knew inside, boy, I want to do something a little different. And I think it would have been fun to maybe get into it a little earlier. Because you did write romance under a couple of other pen names, didn't you? Yes, I did. It, and that's, don't even ask. Publisher, it's all publishing decisions. You go to one publisher, then you go to another one. They want to do a different name. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. What is next for Andrea as author over the next 12 months? What have you got on your desk? I have another Rexford song to start. Book nine will be starting shortly. And I have... An idea for Lady Ariana to be set in Greece, which I'm looking forward to, and I won't give any spoilers. But So I hope to have another Lady Ariana outlet next by summer, let's say, and then there'll be another Rexford Sloan in fall. I have seen on your Goodreads page that readers have been asking questions like, is there another Lady Ariana coming? I know, I know it. It's just because I had to put the Lady Hester book in between two existing deadlines. So the last year was just nonstop. Coming up for air was difficult. <laughs> um, so I, I just didn't have a chance to do a, a Lady Ariana as well. So I'm looking forward to getting her back in the action. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? I do. I have an artistic background. So Instagram is really my favorite social media. I do have a Facebook page. I'm not as active as a lot of people, but I do Instagram. And that's Andrea Penrose Books is my Instagram. And my website, I have a section I call Diversions, where I give a lot of little tidbits on the history in each book. And I do a little essay and a slideshow. So if you want to see what the Royal Botanic Gardens look like, I have a little history on the gardens themselves and a slideshow. And I do that with a lot of the elements that are in my book. And that's just andreapenrose.com. And you can go and have some fun exploring. 
That sounds fun. And also I see that you contribute to a blog called Word Wenches. What's that about? Those are, are there seven of us historical authors, Mary Jo Putney, Patricia Rice, Nicola Cornick, Anne Gracie, Susan King, and Christina Courtney. And we have a lot of fun. We've all become very close friends, even though we are literally around the world. We chat with each other most every day. And so it's a great, it's a fun thing. And the blog is, I think, a a lot of fun as well. I think we're the longest running blog of authors. We've been around now for about 14 or 15 years. Wow. We'll put all of those links in the show notes so people can find them if they're interested in taking that further. Look, it's been great talking, Andrea. It really has. Just as much fun as I anticipated it was going to be. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This was great fun. Thanks so much. Thank you again. This is great. Next week on Binge Reading, internationally published Kiwi author Fiona Sussman and The Doctor's Wife, a psychological thriller of a close friendship shattered by illness and unexpected death. Nothing in Stan and Dino's unremarkable life could prepare him for the day he discovers his wife in the living room, naked except for a black apron, bleaching out a stain in the carpet that only she can see. Terrifyingly believable, the doctor's wife is shortlisted for New Zealand's National Mystery Awards, the Nio Marsh Awards, to be decided in late November. That's it for today. But do remember, just before I go, if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. See you next time and happy reading.